Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Beverly Bossler about her really wonderful new book, Courtesans, Concubines, and the Cult of Female Fidelity. Harvard University Asia Center published this in 2013. Now, make no mistake, this is an important book. It's an exceptionally important book. It's a foundational book, and it's going to be, if it's not already, absolutely required reading for anybody who is interested in reading about or who is writing about China, certainly uh, and especially from the Song period through the Yuan period. And one of the arguments of the book actually is that it's also very important for those of us who work on later periods like the Ming or the Qing. Now, the book itself takes on three shifting, um, inchoate, morphing, um, but important categories of women from the Northern Song through the Southern Song and then the Yuan. These are courtesans, concubines, and exemplary women. And it shows in a, in a series of three parts of the book, each situated in one of these three temporal units, how these categories helped form one another, how they changed, how they transformed, and how in, in some surprising ways, as you'll hear later on in the uh, interview that's to come, and also as you'll read in the book, how dis- discourses around concubines, around courtesans, around uh, widow virtue, around fidelity of various ways, actually um, kind of reverberated out and had some pretty interesting and pretty important and, like I said, pretty surprising ramifications more broadly for the social, cultural, intellectual, and political history of China. It's a, a, a really wonderful book, and whether you're a historian or someone who just likes reading about or listening to discussions about China, you'll get something out of it. It's full of not just important historiographical arguments, but also ruminations on craft, on literary genre, and some great and really some really funny, some really powerful, and some really fascinating stories of individual women or characters, of men, and of uh, lots and lots of different kinds of people and different kinds of texts. So I absolutely enjoyed talking with Beverly about it and reading the book, and I hope you enjoy listening and reading as well. We're here today to talk with Beverly Bossler about her new book, Courtesans, Concubines, and the Cult of Female Fidelity. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Beverly, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. I'm just delighted to be here. So could you start us off, as is traditional for New Books in East Asian Studies, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of Chinese studies and a focus on China in the Song and the Yuan in particular? Oh, my. Well... My interest in Chinese studies really came in through linguistics, and that was after a rather unusual uh, background. After high school, I went to become a ballet dancer and ended up finally uh, giving that up and ended up in college with not much sense at all of what I wanted to do. But uh, I had a friend who was Chinese, and I had another friend who was studying Chinese linguistics at, at Columbia, and I was just very intrigued with the idea that it might be possible to learn this language. And 
when I ended up uh, later at, at as an undergraduate uh, transferring out of the original school I went to to Princeton, I decided I wanted to major in East Asian studies. And from there, I got really interested not only in the language, but the culture. And Princeton had a very strong song history faculty at that time. And um, it just the, the field of song just really appealed to me. Princeton's a great place to study China. I know from, from experience. Yeah, so uh, big shout out to Princeton and their China uh, Studies program. Right. So the book that we're talking about today explores the transformations in gender relations in China and in concepts of gender in China as well from the 10th through the 14th centuries by looking carefully at the categories of courtesans, concubines, and faithful wives, three categories of women that both intersected, kind of bled into each other, and also mutually shaped one another. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to this particular topic for this book? How does this fall within the larger trajectory of your research, and what brought you here? Um, It was a very organic and natural kind of uh, falling into it. My first book looked at families. I I was very interested in Chinese families and the dynamics of families. If I hadn't been a historian, maybe I would have been an anthropologist. Um, And my first book wrote about women and marriage to a large extent, but was not really focused on gender. It was focused on the way family and marriage conditioned political status and social status. Um, When I finished that book, I decided uh, to move more into gender, partly under the influence of my wonderful colleague, Susan Mann, um, at the time. And began to look at what you could find out about women. And I had used a lot of funerary inscriptions for my first book, so I knew that those were there. And I thought, well, let me look into literacy. And as I started to look into how evidence for women writing, I was struck by how a great deal of the evidence actually referred not to the upper-class women commemorated in funerary inscriptions, but rather to courtesans. And I was... I was so shocked because, of course, I had been brought up to believe that the song was a time of very sort of moral uh, philosophy, uh, where where moral philosophy was really important. And the idea that there had been courtesans floating around, I mean, this was not the late Ming, right? This was the song. And um, so I I was amazed to discover that there was actually evidence on courtesans and that got me very excited to try to find out more. And this happened to be just about the time when the electronic Siku Shu, the electronic database of which really contains about 90% or more of surviving Song sources, became text searchable and available. And that allowed me to look for evidence on courtesans in ways that would have been impossible had I just had to leaf through millions of, uh, well, that wouldn't have been millions, but thousands of, of individual um, co- note collections or, or other kinds of sources. So I was able to really focus in on what I could find out. And that, as research tends to do, led me one topic to another, right? Oh, well, there are different kinds of courtesans. Ah, who knew? And well, what would that mean? So that's how it kind of developed. 
I mean, you've already actually um, just alluded to this a little bit, but because you raised the issue of uh, the impact of databases and searchable text databases in particular on research, I think a lot of us have found this in our own work has really dramatically changed the kinds of things that are possible and also the kinds of books that we write in it right now, you know, given that this is a research methodology. I mean, mm-hmm. do you, um, are there any ways, and again, I, I know you just mentioned this a little bit, but that you felt that the course of doing this research in this particular way with these databases actually changed or shaped in a different way or a surprising way the kinds of questions you were asking about your material? Um, hmm. it, because it lets you see the data in a slightly different perspective, um, and it has, it, I, I think this process has both positive and negative uh, advantages and disadvantages. I was able to find a lot of data that I would not have otherwise been able to, to have access to about courtesans, but it, it can lead you to, this is not quite directly answering your question, but, but it can lead you to losing the perspective of the larger, of, of the source, the particular source that you were looking at. Mm-hmm. Now, how that affects the, the questions that you ask, um, I, I would guess, I, I'd say two things. One is, it, it's partly a result of that process that I am looking at such a large time period here. Right. On the other hand, this was a topic that that if you the data is, is sparse enough that if you tried to do it in a very limited time period, you, you probably wouldn't have much to say. So it allows you to take this broader perspective, I guess. And um, whether that's a you know how that leads to well ignoring some of the more subtle changes that happen uh, that that may be an issue but it, it does allow you to to look more broadly I guess would be the obvious thing I'd say yeah I agree thank you so much I and mean, I think it does um, even thinking about what we're doing in terms of and, and I do this as well I and mean, this is and I think a lot of us um, do right now in terms of data um, are uh, making explicit issues of scale in the kind of bibliography that we're writing, I think this is very much, um, at least in part, a, a result of these kinds of technologies that are shaping research. And it's um, really wonderfully done in the book. The book covers you know five centuries of transformations. And I think at the same time, and this is something that I was going to mention in the intro, but I'll just go ahead and mention it now, at the same time that the book is showing transformations on this vast scale, you're also very, very sensitive to the nature of the sources that you're talking about, and you, you zoom in specifically on that issue at several points throughout the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I found that really helpful as a reader and also as a way to understand how to contextualize these large-scale transformations within the material textual record. Mm-hmm. So the book covers, as I mentioned, um, nearly five centuries, and this is a period in which there were some dramatic transformations in society, in politics, in uh, intellectual life, and in lots of other aspects of the kind of uh, social, political, and intellectual worlds that you're talking about here. This period saw, among other things, as you mentioned early in the book, the dramatic growth of a literate elite class, the development of a local elite, 
changes and, and sometimes quite profound changes in kinship relations and an articulation and development of something that we can call a neo-Confucian philosophy. And as we'll go through the parts of the book, um, the, and the parts of the book are separated into chapters that each coalesce around a particular time period, so three, uh, chapters around the Northern Song, Southern Song, and then Yuan, we're going to see um, sequentially the ways that uh, transformations in society and politics and culture really reshaped and um, and transformed these three categories that you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the book and of our conversation: <clears throat> courtesans, concubines, and the cult of female fidelity. So, part one of the book. Let's kind of dive right in. Part one looks at the ways that the growth of commerce and expansion of the elite class contributed to a kind of commercialization of the bodies of women, both for entertainment and for reproduction. You're, you you um, talk in these chapters, which are focused on the uh, late Northern Song, how political debates paid special attention to the roles of concubines and families, to the faithfulness of upper-class widows, and also you talk about popular genres of writing about romantic fidelity, which start to be deployed by people to talk about other types of faithful women, not just faithful courtesans. Okay, so let's jump into chapter one now that I've laid that mm-hmm. out. <laughs> um, chapter one, one of the themes that comes out here um, in this chapter on courtesans and the Northern Song elite is this transformation um, in terms of the extreme moralization of political rhetoric. And you talk mm-hmm. here about how um, moralization of politics and political rhetoric actually helps um, transform or affect new ways of thinking about and talking about courtesans in this context. So maybe mm-hmm. this is a good place to start. Could you talk about that a little bit I and mean, how that is interacting with or intersecting with the other um, themes or arguments of this chapter? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a couple of things are going on. I mean, one is the very virulent factionalism of the late Northern Song Court, which Song specialists have, have studied in, in some detail. Um, but which, well, let's say the, the gendered uh, language of which has, has been largely overlooked. Um, and that gendered language, I think, uh, comes in partly because the concerns of some of the some of the concerns in the, in the factional politics had to do with the way society was being destabilized, I think, by, or I argue, by the growing prevalence of these commodified women in some culture. And that had to do with what, as you've already noted, the, the sort of growing economy and, and growth of this uh, elite class. But it also had to do with uh, urbanization, with the rise of printing, and especially with the uh, getting rid of sumptuary laws that had, had really restricted concubinage, at least theoretically, uh, in other eras. And, and they, the song really just abandons those and lets anybody take a concubine who wants to. And so that creates new problems in the society that I think lead to some of that focus that in, in the song fashional politics on these issues. What were some of the arguments that were leveled against people who were taking courtesans um, in in terms of their morality or official behavior? Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the complaints? Well, there are two kinds of things that are going on, and I argue over the course of the book that, that the nature of the 
the complaints changes a little bit. In the Northern Song, there are still concerns about status. This is a period when China was shifting from an aristocratic style status, a a society where your family position, your background mattered, to to a society where, because of economic possibilities, there is increasing value on actually not having upper class background, on being able to pull yourself up. But it's, but but there are still debates about this. There are debates about whether we should allow merchants, for example, to take the examinations. And given that performers had always been mostly slaves and therefore not even considered to be of good common or much less of elite status. The idea that you would have performers in the household, the idea that elite men in government service would be uh, aligning themselves with these debased persons, that was a huge issue in the Northern Song. Um, There are also issues about... um, one of the arguments I make here about whether the way a man runs his household should it has an impact on his ability to be a successful official, um, and and those two come up in these debates that you see in, in the late Northern Song. I mean, if a man is not able to control the women in his household, if they're and, and there's one famous murder case where a concubine murders a slave girl, um, and this become a, becomes a cause celeb. The, the man is indicted, but the trial, trial drags on. And there's there's considerable debate over whether this is a red herring, that if he's a good official, what goes on in his household shouldn't matter, or on the contrary, no, what uh, the man, the moral status of his household is a critical measure of a man's uh, capability to be an official. Thank you. Now, each of the chapters opens with a short vignette about a particular woman that serves as a model for understanding what's going to continue to be argued later on in that chapter. Um, so chapter one opens with virtuous courtesan Wen Wan, and mm-hmm. I won't ask you to, to talk about um, that too much so that mm-hmm. we can move on to the second chapter, but I just want to mark that for listeners because it's mm-hmm. one of the things about the book that really um, is very effective in drawing our attention to these women as individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, it's as you know, very hard to get. These are all biographies of women written by men. Uh, to the extent they're individuals, it's you know, it's it's a very mediated sense of who they are. But 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 I think it's it's interesting to have the stories there, and they they are evocative. I think. That's right. Now, in Chapter 2, one of the uh, individuals, well, again, in this mediated sense of individuality, but at least individuals who we are able to meet in the narrative, even as we are being thoughtful about the fact that they are mediated and perhaps aggregate or composite, narrativized individuals. is uh, So one of these individuals who's uh, really interesting here is the love of uh, the life of Sushir. So the chapter, um, the second chapter opens with Sushir memorializing the young woman who he had loved called Morning Cloud. Can you introduce that story for us, um, even just briefly, and talk a little bit about how that um, is situated within the larger transformations happening in this chapter? Well, as best we know, and we know most 
about Morning Cloud from Sushir's own poetry. She was a young woman brought into his house at a very young age. I think it was nine, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and it becomes apparent from some of his poetry, although people haven't really remarked on this much before, that she was an entertainer, that she danced. Um, and he had several of these courtesan concubine handmaids, whatever you want to call them, uh, entertainer concubines. But she was the one that stayed with him. Ultimately, she had uh, a child by him when he was sent in exile. She was the only one to go with him. Um, and he, you know, his, his relationship with her actually was, was much uh, much celebrated by later in the Ming Dynasty when people were interested in talking about romantic relationships. They went back to Su Shur and Morning Cloud. So that helped me because there was some data about her. Um, I think I didn't understand her very well until I did this broader research about the kind of... of institutions that were there for, for these kinds of young women. She was born in a you know, modest family. We don't know much about her background, but clearly she was somebody who became his partner in spite of the fact that he had two wives um, who he's very respectful of in his writing, but not passionate about, whereas there is some passion in his writing about Morning Cloud. So you mentioned in this chapter that one of the things that's so, or at least I read in this chapter, yeah. at least from the perspective of one reader, um, one of the things that's really interesting about this um, figure of Morning Cloud is that she does represent this new model of um, entertainers or entertainer mm-hmm. concubines who are in mm-hmm. households. And this sort of brings us to one of the other really interesting arguments in this chapter, um, which is you're arguing here that status distinctions between different types of concubines um, and also between them and legal wives become really important to family life in this period mm-hmm. in a new mm-hmm. way. So would you um, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Right. Well, entertainer concubines are not really new in this period. You can go back to the Han, the Six Dynasties, and you'll see that in the households of uh, important people, there were entertainer concubines. Well, there were entertainers. Uh, they were called ji, or the term that we use for courtesan. Um, and they were slaves. And they did occasionally have children. And there's some evidence that in these earlier periods that a, a, an entertainer who had a child might be raised to the manumitted and then raised to the status of concubine because technically concubines, legally concubines were supposed to be people of um, non-slave status, of, of good commoner status. What happens in the Song, I'm arguing, is that because of the growing economy, because the shift in ideas about status, all of those um, categories are breaking down. and But the terms stay the same. So you still talk about a G in a household, but now the distinction between a G who is technically a slave um, or an indentured servant and a concubine just gets completely elided. That that distinction just just blurs to where nobody uh, 
the, the vocabulary gets used interchangeably and so forth. And so with that shift and with the, the breakdown of these status categories, the, the distinction between a concubine and a wife starts to get a little bit slippery as well. And the fact that the children of concubines could be legitimate sons or were considered legitimate sons also contributes to that. So it starts to be that the only the only kind of thing that holds the status together is a man's willingness to give his wife a special position. Um, legally, she has one, but in the emotional dynamics, that doesn't always hold up. So all of this gets very, very messy, which, again, contributes to these kind of debates and concerns that let, get worked out in court as well as elsewhere uh, that we talked about earlier. Now, as we move from this to the third chapter, Prose, Politics, and Prodigies, we see here the first stage of an an interest, a heightened interest, as I think you put it in this chapter, in female fidelity in this Mm -hmm. moment. Now, you Mm -hmm. mentioned here, I mean, contrary to what some of us um, might have thought or or might sort of take for granted, which is, you know, we take for granted um, this discourse of fidelity and widowhood, you argue here, I think really convincingly, that the emphasis on the fidelity of widows, um, and in fact on widows themselves in this period, was actually rather new. So this seems very important, um, and I'd, I'd love if you talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we all know, right, that, that way back in the Lian Yuzhuan, to be a faithful wife, to be a widow who refuses to leave the inner quarters in a fire or whatever, was, was a really uh, valorized thing. And Fidelity is always admired, but it's very, very clear that in Song, um, lots of upper-class women remarried. Um, It was not an expectation that an upper-class woman would stay uh, a widow, would would stay uh, faithful to her deceased husband the way it does become in the Ming and the Qing. And people have known this for a while, and so the question is, well, why does this happen in the song. Um, one of the arguments that, that I'm trying to make is that it happens precisely because these boundaries between courtesans and concubines and wives are getting so slippery. And that for a wife to remain faithful is one way she distinguishes herself from the concubine because concubines are routinely uh, married out or sold off, if you will, when their husbands die. So a, a wife that's also goes off and remarries looks again like a concubine a wife that doesn't looks more like a wife and at the same time and perhaps ironically though this is um in, if you think about it this this makes a lot of sense at the same time, what's happening is that writings about the devotion and the romantic devotion of entertainers are actually used as templates to celebrate loyalty of upper-class wives and the fidelity. And so even though there's this dis- social distinction um, being made at the same time narratively, there is a movement from one category to the other. Well, it's, it's, and it's not just the, the narrative, but the writing about upper-class women. You have new kinds of writing about upper-class women in, in the Tang and even in the early Song. Upper-class women are written about largely in funerary inscriptions. And even there, there's a rhetoric that says, well, we shouldn't write funerary inscriptions of upper-class women because, after all, a good woman's name is not known outside the household. But what starts to happen is, along with circulation, and and here I'm sure printing is also a factor, um, circulation of stories about 
courtesans and uh, about the paramours, concubines of, of upper-class men, you start to get people wanting to celebrate faithful wives. And I also argue in this chapter that another factor that comes in here is the fraught political situation of the Northern Song, that loyalty of men becomes uh, an important issue. And one way to shame men into loyalty, if you will, is to point out how women are staying loyal. And it gets very messy because you're talking about widows on one hand, but then on another hand, you're talking about women who refuse to be raped by invading soldiers. And so that rhetoric of, of that fidelity gets um, conflated with rhetoric about faithful widows. Right, and that's actually, we see that also in chapter six. Uh, right. It's a really, right. really um, powerful, I think, uh, case of that. So as we move, though, so before we get to chapter six, um, let's move more generally um, to part two of the book in which uh, chapter six is embedded. So we've just moved from part one, which is Northern Song, to part two, um, which focuses on the Southern Song. These Mm -hmm. chapters in part two, four, five, and six, look at how the popularity of courtesans and concubines spreads throughout Southern Song society and some of the ramifications of that. Mm -hmm. Chapter four... Um, in this, you, you talk about the impact of printing um, and print mm-hmm. media on commercialization um, of women, of women's bodies, of uh, commodification of all, all kinds of things related mm-hmm. to them. You talk about the ways that uh, as female entertainers become more numerous, there are more and more complaints about disruptions to families mm-hmm. and to governments. We see the Northern Song collapsing in 1127. The Southern Song dissolves the Court Entertainment Bureau. All kinds of wonderful things are going on in this chapter. Mm-hmm. So for listeners, I direct your attention. Um, there's a lot of richness in this chapter that's really fascinating as a kind of um, transition point from mm-hmm. the kinds of phenomena that we're talking about before. Now, what I want to ask you to talk about, um, if you wouldn't mind for a little bit, you uh, again, we see in this chapter, albeit in a slightly different way, Uh, many complaining about the negative influence of courtesans. And here Mm -hmm. it's on local government offices Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. blaming of courtesans for a a kind of general decline in morality. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, and this is an interesting counterpoint, um, and and this is what I uh, would love if you could talk a little bit about. At the same time as this, there's actually a really growing interest in seeing courtesans as as human beings, as the humanity Mm -hmm. of courtesans, and as examples or exemplars of ethical behavior. So at the same time, we're blaming them for a downfall in morality and also seeing them as exemplars of ethical behavior. So can you talk a little bit about where, where is this humanizing of courtesans coming from and how does it happen that they're seen um, as ethical paragons at the same time that they're blamed for uh, moral downfall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely have two contrary trends going on at the same time. Um as entertainers become more uh, prevalent in the society, uh, you, you do have precisely this this really strong concern that local government is being uh, disrupted, partly because, as, as I discuss, I think it's in Chapter 5, uh, the – oh, no, I guess it is Chapter 4 – the um, – Entertainers at the local government offices become brokers for people who want lawsuits fixed, who who want uh, to inter- want to 
reach the prefect or reach the county magistrate, and they know that uh, he's and he's hanging around with the courtesans, so they approach the courtesans to get help with their lawsuits. And there's a wonderful, wonderful indictment that we have from Jushi um, about exactly this kind of situation. Uh, so that's the sort of sense that they are in this position of power that they don't belong in and they can't be trusted, just like clerks and runners can't be trusted. That's one line of, of discussion. At the same time, and here um, I, I do invoke Lynn Hunt and her work on uh, the novel and its role in Europe in sort of creating the, the idea that all people have feelings, that all people have um, a right to their own individuality. Um, the, the, the idea that all of these circulating stories about courtesans, in which they are often heroines and faithful to their lovers and so forth, I think starts to change attitudes toward courtesans. This is uh, related to, I think, also Neo-Confucian um, ideas about the, I, that everyone is endowed with this um, a good heart. It goes back to Mencius, but that, that everyone, it's revived by the Neo-Confucians, that everyone has the capacity to be a moral person, no matter how lowly. This is a very different kind of social ethic than you saw in the Tang, where aristocratic status, I mean, morality, the ability to be moral, to be moral comes with birthright, with being a cult, being from an upper-class family. Now, anybody can is believed to have uh, some kind of basic moral uh, predisposition, if you will, that can be cultivated. Like women, uh, in, again, in the rhetoric of that's trying to encourage male fidelity, since the Southern Song government is also still worried about this, um, courtesans are uh, who are loyal are an even more powerful emblem of. For, for shaming men and look if if a if a courtesan a lowly courtesan can be loyal like this why can't the men be so so that that idea that courtesans are individuals that lower class people in general are individuals is getting broadcast through short stories through anecdotes and and I argue toward the end of of, of drama as well. Right. Now, you just mentioned Jushi, and that actually really uh, beautifully brings us to another thing that I wanted to ask you as we move to the next chapter. So you um, evoked the case in which, and I, I, I want to just highlight this for listeners because I loved this, Jushi is actually indicting um, his colleague Tang Zhongyu and claiming that his keeping of courtesans actually brought about this drought. And so there's wonderful sort of cosmological resonance story in there, too. In the next chapter... We also see Jushi, um, and here Jushi is upholding the recognition of concubines as mothers. Mm -hmm. So this, I think, is a really good um, example that brings up two related things that um, that uh, are happening in this part of the book that I think are really important and that we haven't, one of which is something that's very important to the book itself that we haven't yet had a chance to touch on, so this is a great place for that. So how, um, when we think of Jushi, we think of Neo-Confucian scholars, so how in the this period are neo-confucian scholars dealing with the institution for example of concubinage how what where does neo-confucian scholarship come in here and why uh, are concubines taken seriously 
as mothers um, in a new way in this period? Well, I, again, I think there are a lot of complex things going on here, but for the new Confucians are very concerned about family relations. They're concerned about proper ethical relations between human beings, and that starts in the family. Um, and in this context, you see people like Jushi, and this is this is something you start to see even in the Northern Song, uh, a new rhetoric about concubines, and, and Jushi sort of exemplifies it as, and as he is consolidating Neo-Confucian philosophy in, in the Southern Song, he, he, he particularly addresses this issue on, on numerous occasions. The question is, if your mother was a concubine, how are you supposed to treat her? How are you supposed to mourn her? Um, traditionally and legally still in the Song, the, the main wife, the father's legitimate wife, not his concubines, were nominally the mothers of all children. They are the legal mothers. You owed your legal mother your respect and filial piety. But this left a question of how you were supposed to treat your concubine mother. And for people like Zhu Xi, who believe in a kind of morality that is inborn and that comes out of basic human relations, the idea that you could somehow ignore your concubine mother is, is, is anathema. And so Jushi writes very clearly. He says, well, of course you have to, you know, mourn and properly uphold the status of your legal mother. But, if, but at the same time, you must be properly filial to your concubine mother. And he, he, Stipulates all kinds of, of new rituals. Um, there's a, there are court again court debates about this kind of thing. How do you can you can you enfeef a concubine mother? How can you honor a concubine mother? And Jushi is very concerned that people take care of their concubine mothers, keep them in the household, respect them, be filial to them, because he's coming from a position that says basic human relationships are how uh, all morality starts. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, this is something that I was going to save to the end, but since we're on this topic now and talking a little bit about Neo-Confucianism in the context of this part of the book, I think it's a good time to just step out a little bit mm-hmm. and mention and um, mark and perhaps talk a little bit about the ways that the book is engaging and helping us transform the way we think about neo-confucianism mm-hmm. in you know in this period um, more broadly writ so i wonder do you want to speak to that now because that does seem to be a really important part of the kind of work that the book is doing mm-hmm. well and this was something that as often happens when we're doing research, you, you go in thinking that you understand what's going on and you're expecting it to be a certain way. And then the more you read and the more you look at the sources, it doesn't quite fit. And I went in with the sort of general assumption that some of the changes, at least, that I was going to be looking at um, or was was looking at or was seeing in how concubines were treated were began with Neo-Confucianism, that it was a a moral rhetoric that was established in the Northern Song and that began to spread in Southern Song and changed the way the society viewed itself. But the more I looked at the sources, the more it seemed to be be that you saw this certain kinds of rhetoric that we attribute to Neo-Confucianism actually emerging first in the rhetoric of other people, of people who were not Neo-Confucian philosophers. And 
only later do the Neo-Confucians actually pick up this rhetoric and systematize it. So as I've already suggested, there are debates in Northern Song, even at, at court, about, well, how should emperors treat their concubine mothers who were not empresses? Um, and how, you know, what should the laws be about this? It's only in Jushi, much, much later, that we start to get... Um, in, a discussion in the Neo-Confucian con- philosophical context of why this is important and why you should you know, be careful of your concubine mother. Now, the, another interesting factor there, of course, is that the Neo-Confucians are concerned about human desire and the way that that destabilizes human relationships. So they're in this very tricky position of having to argue concubines are important. They're important for the imperative of having children, which is a a Confucian good. Um, On the other hand, they don't want men to have desires. And so uh, there's this, I think for me anyway, it was a pretty funny section where where I'm describing the, the rhetoric, which basically tells men you should have concubines, but you should not want to sleep with them. And that the concubines, you should have wives who, who want you to have concubines because they want you to have sons and they're not at all jealous. Um, and, and you get this, this kind of new vision of the ideal couple where she's encouraging the husband to have concubines and the husband is saying, no, no, I don't, don't want a concubine. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of amusing. Now, as we move um, to the later part of the book, you, we move to chapter six, and we've already talked a little bit about this, or at least invoked what's happening in this really interesting chapter. This is a chapter in which, as you mentioned um, a little bit before, literati begin to commemorate the loyalty and the martyrdom of upper-class women as a way to try to encourage political loyalty in men. So mm-hmm. is there anything more that you wanted to say about that? It's a really fascinating um, case study for, I think, not not only for people interested in political history, but also here um, for another case in which we have analogous re- or literary analogies being used to transform a kind of argument from one category of people to another category of people. Mm-hmm. So it's also mm-hmm. interesting in terms of literary genres. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, in a, in a, to, to put it rather simply, I mean, I do think that what goes on is, is there is this upsurge in writing about faithful widows. It, it really begins in the late Northern Song, um, but it gets much broader in the Southern Song as, as people um, commemorate actually less faithful widows, but as, as women who died in the invasions and, and died refusing to be raped by invaders. But this rhetoric gets more and more um, prevalent and Gradually, by the end of Southern Song, you see that same kind of rhetoric emerging in places like funerary inscriptions for for faithful widows, and that's a new a new thing in or in in the rhetoric for faithful women to make such an issue of uh, not just that she's faithful and and she's done all these great things for the family, but that she's personally faithful to her husband. And it, it comes out of, again, both, I think, the political situation, but as we've already discussed a little bit, the rhetoric of personal fidelity of, of courtesan lovers to their husbands. So you, you have all of this now emerging in writings for faithful women. Um, in Southern Song, 
still mostly in in funerary inscriptions, but also beginning to to emerge in other genres that had not been used to write about women before, such as upper class women before, such as poetry prefaces and um, colophons to biographies, things like that. Now, as we move to the third part of the book and we move from the Southern Song to the Yun, we also move explicitly to another, uh, what we might consider as or talk about in the context of another genre of writing, and that is narrative drama. Mm-hmm. So part three of the book moves us into the Yuan and shows uh, a number of important transformations. So in, in this part of the book, you um, are arguing here, and, and again, I think really compellingly, that literary men, literati men rather, come increasingly to appreciate courtesans' talents and their humanity. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. mention here that the um, entertainment functions of concubines are increasingly downplayed, and the idealized role of concubines becomes closer to that of wives. And there are many other kinds of transformations happening here. In the seventh chapter of the book, Exemplary Entertainers, you look closely at the development of full-scale narrative drama in this period in the Yuan. You argue here that the popularity of these dramas especially those that are depicting the feelings of entertainers, is actually contributing to a transformation in broader perceptions of them. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this um, this phenomenon, the sort of uh, depictions of entertainers in drama having larger cultural and social shifts in terms of the way that um, they're perceived more broadly. Mm-hmm. Again, this, this goes back to a, a, an analogy, I think, with, with the point that Lynn Hun makes, but that in China, it's really not in, in novels or short stories or letters that, that this happens, but in drama, precisely because drama, the arias in Chinese drama is where people express their perspectives on the world, their their heartfelt emotions. They really tell you who they are. And a striking number of the hero of, of, of the leading characters in Yuan drama turn out to be courtesans, turn out to be entertainers. And over and over again, we see like, the loyal entertainer, the faithful entertainer. Um, they're, they're always their heroines, uh, even in the one drama where uh, the, the nominal heroine is... Uh, actually a bad courtesan who, who keeps going back, who, who is faithless and hopeless and goes, keeps going back to the courtesan profession. Um, the, the lead narratives, uh, the lead, sorry, the lead arias are all sung not by that character, but by various heroic uh, sister courtesans who try to persuade her to um, do the right thing. So, over and over again in Yuan drama, you have courtesans as heroines pouring out their hearts, um, evoking sympathy, become, being very sympathetic characters. And I think this uh, starts to change attitudes, especially along with the fact that a lot of literati men are suddenly finding themselves under the UN government disenfranchised, um, unable to, uh, unappreciated themselves. I mean, it's, it's they're now in a, in a much more um, likely position to be empathetic, we might say, with, with people who, whose talents are not always appreciated. Now, as we move from uh, the treatment of courtesans in Chapter 7, we then move to Chapter 8, where we also see transformations in this second category of 
um, of women that we're talking about throughout the book, mm-hmm. and that is uh, concubines. Mm-hmm. You argue in this part of the book that concubines are being domesticated, and that this actually has um, large ramifications for um, how not only young writers of various genres are dealing with this, and how um, sort of broader societal notions, again, of concubines, but also how this dovetails with neo-Confucian thought, or learning of the way, mm-hmm. rather, thought. Mm-hmm. So, can mm-hmm. you talk about, what does this mean to say that concubines are being domesticated, and what are the larger ramifications of that fear? Okay, well, first of all, I want to um, give a shout-out to Neil Katkoff, who, who originally wrote a, a really wonderful PhD dissertation looking at the domestication of concubines strictly in 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 law from Tang to Ming. So that, his, that, that term domestication is, is his and he, he deserves credit for it. Um, but what he saw in the legal sources, I found very much borne out in other kinds of sources, uh, particularly funerary inscriptions for women and the way concubines and concubines' children are talked about in those funerary inscriptions. Increasingly, you see de-emphasis, as you've already suggested, on the entertainment functions and emphasis on concubines as mothers, and also new emphasis on the way concubines' children should be taught. And this dovetails with Neo-Confucianism, once again, in, in the Confucian concern for family relations, and in particular for the concern about the way families can be stabilized by tensions between half-brothers, brothers of the wife, sons of the wife, sons of the first concubine, the second concubine, and so forth. Um, Often the sons of the concubine are as much as a generation younger than their brothers. And one of the things the Confucians become very upset about is the fact that rather than treating all the brothers as equal co-parsoners in in estates, uh, brothers are letting their their half-brothers inherit from them. And this... uh, disrupts all kinds of notions of generational hierarchy and so forth. And and Neo-Confucian writers get quite upset about that. And they're very, very anxious that the family stay together and that brothers stay together. Now, as we move from this to um, to the last chapter, in which we look again at um, fidelity and, and, and especially faithful widows, we have a transformation from something that we just saw in the analogous position in the previous chapter, which looks at the Southern Song. So whereas in the Southern Song, um, we saw cases in which uh, virtuous women were being upheld or loyal women were being upheld as models for men, here we have faithful widows being held up not as models for men in the Yuan, but instead for other women. So can you talk about that? Why is that important and what are the reasons for that shift? Um, Well, I think Part of the, I'll start take the second part first. Sure. I, mean, I think part of the reason for that shift is that it's just the proliferation of writing about faithful women, and it's it, it really isn't in the song that you see the huge proliferation. It it takes off exponentially in the UN, and it takes off in the UN in large part, I think, because there are particular social and political and uh, monetary advantages to having your mother named a faithful wife. The the UN government gives tax remission, especially corvée remission. Corvée levies were very onerous in in the UN. So for a disenfranchised literati class that can no longer uh, depend on participation in the examinations to get them tax remission, 
having a faithful wife, mother is another way to, to get that, that tax permission. So I think there are very real um, sort of monetary reasons that that happens. Once that does happen, though, and this this rhetoric of fidelity and these and these texts just start proliferating all over the place. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of poems and poetry prefaces written for faithful lives. I think gradually the what what had been you know holding up faithful women as a model for men starts to become uh, j- just just by sheer repetition a sense that oh well this is this is what women should be doing this is women this, you know it's, it's t- telling us over and over about faithful women and oh yes i guess that's women are supposed to be faithful and so in, in biographies of women from the un more generally where you used to see a lot of different kinds of things uh, values highlighted increasingly fidelity becomes the the signal value that that defines a good woman. Why is this important is that it, it, as we move into the Ming and the Qing, it makes female fidelity, again, the, the, the major virtue for women. And as that spreads, um, it has all kinds of ramifications for women's property, women's remarriage, and so forth. And what you just said actually speaks to one of the, um, in addition to the way that the book is asking us to rethink the role of Neo-Confucianism in the Song and Yuan, it's also asking us at the same time to rethink gender, um, to gender order in late imperial China and the ways that those foundations were set um, within mm-hmm. the Song and the Yuan. And so you just uh, mentioned that briefly in the last part of your comment. I wonder if you could expand on that more broadly as we come to the conclusion of our conversation. How um, more broadly, perhaps using that example, but then talking about you know, any other aspects of this that you'd like, does this case change the way we think about gender and gender history in late imperial China and the Ming and Qing um, and and beyond uh, specifically? Um, Well, uh, primarily, I think that the the myth has been that Neo-Confucians came in in the Song, um, established this new gender order. uh, It's all their fault. Right. And, and that, that women were, were sort of rendered less powerful uh, and in later imperial China. And it all happened that way. I'm trying to argue that it, the development was much more complex, that it was in many cases uh, what we're seeing is, is this new sh- regime for women of uh, the fidelity regime for women. I'm arguing it's really is the in- result of unintended consequences. Um, it certainly was not the Neo-Confucians who are rather late to pick up on that whole idea to begin with. Um, implications for understanding later imperial, I, I think you know, to first of all, to see that it isn't the Ming where this all starts; that it, it definitely starts uh, in the earlier period, and it's it, it certainly, as Katie Carlos has shown, expands in the Ming in, in new ways. Um, mm-hmm. But it's but it's really an ongoing change uh, change throughout that that entire period. Um, that would be the main thing, I guess, that I'm thinking of. There are also um, arguments about that I make about masculinity, um, the, the ways that 
ideas about women, ideas of uh, and, and men's relationships with women shape what our image of the ideal or what the Chinese image of the ideal male is and how that is historically conditioned. It, it, it seems to cycle. You Once again, in, in late Ming, you have the cult of Qing, you have romance valorized, you have uh, literati men's romances with uh Courtesans valorize. This is something that happened in the Song and is repeated in in the Ming. So seeing these cycles, I think, is another important aspect of of how my book maybe changes our view of late imperial period. Well, Beverly, thank you so much again for making the time. It's an amazing book. This is, I think, already. I mean, it's you'd mentioned it's already in a second printing, right? So it's already yeah. becoming, I think, a, an absolute must read for anyone who works on the history of Imperial China. Certainly, for anyone interested in um, history of family, of Neo Confucianism, of law, of women, of gender, and of any number of other kinds of phenomena in this in this broad um, historical context that we're talking about. So congratulations on the book. It's an amazing book. It's an important book, and it's going to be one of our foundational books, if not already. There's a lot in the book that said, and it's an extraordinarily rich story. There was, of course, a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to get to in the course of our conversation in an hour. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, Well, at this point, I I think we've got through most of the main points that that uh, I see as, as significant in the book. So I, I think we're all right at this point. Great. And, and I will mention um, also, as we're on this, the cover is also quite beautiful. Oh, so it's thank a very, you. It's a thank very you. beautiful cover. So now that the book is out, and again, congratulations on that and on the second printing, what's next for you? What project or projects are inspiring you at the moment? Um, I, well, I'm, I'm fussing around with, with a bunch of things. I had been working for a while on um, ideas about male connection and uh, maybe about male-male relationships, um, friendship, and so forth. But I'm finding myself also intrigued, and, and the two aren't really mutually exclusive, but with thinking about what emotion means in China um, and in China in the, in the Song in the UN and how that, how ideas about emotion, ideas about love might have been shifting in that period. Um, I'm not sure yet whether it's a project that can really be done. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to get enough into the, the sources to, to really see whether it's possible, but I'm, it, it's something that intrigues me and I'd like to try to pursue at least. Well, best of luck on that. That sounds also like a great project. So once so I'll look forward to talking to you about that one it's out as well. Um, thank you again, Beverly. Best of luck with the new project. And again, thank you so much for making time. Well, thank you, Carla. It's really been fun. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.